Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 26th of September, and this is Govind Rajayathi Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. And a reminder: we are in the last few days of the Ganpati Festival. If you are in the city or visiting, this is your opportunity to glimpse the famed and giant idols across the city. Our top stories and themes for the day: foreign funds will flow into Indian government bonds, but that comes with some additional scrutiny. Forget the sundowner. The National Stock Exchange wants to start derivatives trading between 6 and 9 p.m. India is waiting for Tesla's car factory, but then so are several other countries. Late-night talk shows in America might return as Hollywood writers' strike could end. And hmm, where in India should you really buy your booze? This is a core report with Govind Raj Athiraj. and the markets and the rupee and bonds i did mention on monday morning that while i could not really say which way the market would go on monday i was not seeing any real upward trigger for it turned out i was only slightly wrong the stock markets were volatile on monday and the bse sensex went up and down before closing 15 points higher at 66024 the nifty 50 on the other hand was unchanged at 19676 or it did not go anywhere so i was slightly right too but I would of course hesitate to make these guesses too often because in my experience the markets tend to punch you in the face if you do that too often. Meanwhile, if you are an active markets trader and particularly into derivatives, you could forget about your weekday sundowners. The National Stock Exchange has sought Securities and Exchange Board of India approval to hold evening trading sessions in the equity derivatives segment. The NSE wants to extend trading hours of index futures and options to continue between 6 and 9 p.m. Equity derivatives trading in these extended hours will be considered as the next day's volumes to avoid complications an exchange official told BQ Prime it will take at least a few months for these extended hours for derivatives trading to go live global events tend to have an impact on india's capital markets the idea behind these extended hours is to take one small step towards what the other global exchanges and other advanced countries have already accomplished the official said adding that they were currently considering only index based futures and options for trading in extended hours which will not impact the interoperability of or i'm assuming with other exchanges he said all this was possible the official said because of technological sophistication that was most likely non-existent earlier meanwhile despite the promise of billions of dollars flowing into the country following jp morgan's inclusion of india in its bond index the rupee itself is not showing that much signs of life the rupee was at 82.80 before jp morgan's decision and was at 83.11 after and it closed at 83.14 on monday The Indian rupee's outlook remains weak and any rally in the currency following JP Morgan's index inclusion should be used to build long dollar rupee positions economists at Nomura said in a note quoted by BQ Prime Nomura said actual inflows from passive funds are unlikely until around June 2824 which is when it kicks in and the bonds will be included and active fund houses would need to be mindful of their tracking error limits Now actual inflows may be smaller with some real money managers that they tracked already invested about 2 to 3% on average the brokerage said India's current account could come under further pressure from a widening trade deficit nomura said in a note the recent ban on rice exports and rise in oil prices could widen India's trade deficit by around 17 billion dollars on an annualized basis it added the observation on rice exports and its link to trade deficit is interesting 
since it was all there for us to see. Remember, we have banned exports of non-Basmati rice and oil prices, on the other hand, are somewhere between $90 to $95 a barrel and are being projected to go up to $100 a barrel by some. Staying with bonds, inflows and outflows, JP Morgan's move to include Indian government bonds into its Emerging Markets Bond Index from June next year will mean more scrutiny from foreign investors on public finances. While global asset managers play a small role in the Indian market today, inflows have been picking up ever since the government loosened rules in 2020 on the bonds foreigners can own. India's weighting will reach a maximum 10% in the JP Morgan Index, which accounts for about $213 billion in assets. To get a sense on how the likely flow of funds into Indian government bonds was likely to play out and its competitive position versus all other options overseas investors might have, I spoke with Namrata Mittal, economist at SPI Mutual Fund, a joint venture between State Bank of India and Amundi of France. So all of you would be aware of the technical aspects of it, the amount that is being spoken of and so forth. So I'll straight away get to where I see this in the perspective of Indian economy. Fundamentally, for me, this is a positive development. And why I say this is a positive development from these following aspects. First, it creates an additional source to fund India's fiscal deficit as well as current account. So right whenever in future, I mean, it just takes away some pressure from RBI or banks or even other financial institutions like pension fund and insurance who were under some sort of a regulatory requirement to invest a certain stipulated amount in the government bonds, particularly G6 and the SDLs. So the first, it does create an additional source. Secondly, JP Morgan, you know, put India on the positive watch list in 2021. And ever since then, there had been a multiple round of discussions between Government of India and the JP Morgan with regards to certain taxes that India levies on the FII investments, with regards to the settlement, whether it has to be domestically settled or on Euroclear, and along with that, certain operational aspects. Interestingly, India stood its stand, the government stood its stance on the taxes as well as the settlement, though some operational issues it was ready to give into. And yet, despite that, finally, investors themselves of the bond, they have asked that India should be included in the index, which speaks positively of India's macro. Just as an Indian equity, we are seeing that Indian equities is under some kind of there is no alternative. And despite the rich valuations, time and again, you keep seeing a huge sum of money. In fact, ever since 1999, when India was included in the MSCI index, there has been only few years where India has seen a net outflow from the Indian equity. Similarly, I guess this is some sort of a reward for the currency stability that has been maintained post the taper tantrum since 2014. We've ensured that inflation, even if it goes high, we've not touched double digit in last eight to nine years. And when many other economies, they were splurging fiscally right after COVID, our fiscal deficit was under manageable levels and it had been scaled down also to an extent. And there is a very limited 
portion of our debt which gets funded externally as of now. So these macro aspects led investors to ask to be invested in India. And the third aspect why I see this as a positive is because at first it will not only help to reduce the risk premium that is on the Indian government bonds, but it will also be some sort of an additional carrot and stick measure which will ask our policymakers and our government to always stay put India's macro stability. You're saying it's like an indirect pressure to keep a close watch on. Yes, you cannot let your macro house go out of the order. So to start with, these are few points why I see that, of course, not only sentimentally, but from another source of fun, from the macro point of view, I see it as an initial starting point to be a good development. Right. And this is going to only start from next year. And whatever flows that we're looking at, will the $25 billion is being projected is likely to come after that. So what's the flip side of this? Money coming into the country, there is obviously always a currency risk. So how are you seeing that? I mean, this is just one risk. Could there be anything else? So, you know, when you think about the macro impact of this on market, on currency, on our external account and on yields, you should probably bucket the timelines in three zones. First is from now until June 2024. Which is, I mean, June 2024 is when the actual inclusion start. Like we all know that the index will assign 10% weight to India. And that will not happen just at a one go. It will happen one percentage point every month between June 2024 to March 2025. But before that, you could see some sort of a sentimentally positive inflow, which could come even for the other investors, which see this as a positive move or which are actively tracking and in fact you know financial year to date between april to september we've already seen some three to four billion of fii investment in the indian bonds perhaps in the anticipation that such a move was likely to fructify and there could be a few more billion dollars which could come in in the very near term i see this that this could provide some sort of a ceiling to how high bond yields can go in the current global backdrop when U.S. yields is just moving higher, probably this provides a cap to how high Indian bond yields can go. And secondly, when your crude prices have once again touched above 90, because you know that there is an additional source of money which is waiting to come in India, provide this may perhaps also provide a little high how much rupee can depreciate in this financial year. This is the first time bucket. Second time bucket I'm talking about is when your actual money already starts to pour in. At that time, if you see that India's current account deficit is usually, I mean, can be projected simplistically around 80 to 90 billion dollars. So it provides around, broadly I'm saying that including this JP Morgan, along with that there are Jade and few other indices also which so. One third of current account is comfortably financed in FY25 and you get nearly around 10 to 12% of your gross supply of government bonds will get funded from this particular inflow. So till the time and you know it could so happen just now there are news flows which are floating that investors are also requesting Bloomberg to consider this and expedite at India's inclusion. Perhaps, I mean, till the time you see that fresh money coming in, there is a movement to bring in a lot of inflow. But you cannot really say that 
bond yields would just go one way down because what if it leads to a lot of liquidity inflow and RBI is not comfortable with such high amount of liquidity and so they are providing and they are selling GSEC. Of course, the maturities in which the buckets in which RBI will sell if at all, and the maturities, and they would differ. So market will have to analyze how it impacts on the yields. Right. Namita, thank you so much for joining me. Sure. On debt and moving on to banks, Reserve Bank of India Governor dropped a small bomb today when he said that Central Bank had noticed excessive dominance by one or two board members even in big commercial banks and asked the lenders to desist from such practices. Board discussions, he said, have to be free, fair and democratic, addressing directors of the urban cooperative banks at a meeting organised by the Reserve Bank of India. His comments, while could encompass public sector banks, which I will come to in a moment, or state-owned banks, are most likely targeting the private ones, notably where there is a founder or CEO's presence looming large. Now, this has always been the case in the past with private banks, where overpowering personalities have been CEOs and thus held sway on the rest of the board. Chanda Kochar of ICICI Bank is one example, given that her board seemed to wilt under her power. And the board clearly gave her considerable leeway when they should have asked her to step aside, given the then-allegations, which subsequently led to charge sheets and arrests. Rana Kapoor of Yes Bank is another instance where, although in hindsight, he seems to have rammed through lending decisions which may have faced some hurdle from a board in normal circumstances. And most recently, of course, Uday Kotak of Kotak Bank, who has stepped down as Managing Director and CEO, but has been seen as a case of someone who could exert influence on the board and its decision-making even if he were not the CEO, thanks to his majority shareholding while being on the board. Speaking of non-compliance, the Reserve Bank has announced it has slapped monetary penalties on three state-owned banks, State Bank of India, Indian Bank and Corporation Bank for various non-compliances with Reserve Bank regulations, with fines ranging from 1 to 1.6 crore rupees. India is pulling back on import licenses for laptops and tablets. India is further liberalizing its planned restrictions on imports from laptops, tablets and other IT hardware, giving manufacturers like Apple, HP and Dell more time to prepare for potential curbs, Bloomberg News is reporting. India will do away with the compulsory licensing requirement for tech importers and will instead only ask such companies to register under its so-called import management system, sources told the news agency. The system is likely to start operating on November 1st, they said, asking not to be named as the matter is in public. The move to license import follows a larger thinking of boosting local production for consumer electronics, including high-end laptops. Now, the move sent shockwaves, not so much for its intent, but its suddenness and the seeming lack of prior consultation, which could have easily been done. The lack of consultation, of course, is a common feature across several policy steps, with several such policy decisions sprung upon industry for reasons it's not clear at all. Last month, the government said it was imposing import licenses in a move that shocked companies like Apple and Samsung. A day later, India's trade body delayed the move by three months. Now, according to the latest plan, all companies bringing everything from tablets and laptops to desktop computers and servers into India will have to register. So, instead of cutting back imports, inbound shipments won't be affected for six to nine months, according to the report. India has also unveiled a roughly 15,000 crore financial incentive plans to incentivize computer makers to make in the country, and several companies have already applied or begun applying for these. 
The core report had earlier spoken to representatives of India's electronics industry who made a strong case for local manufacturing and felt that with the right incentives and some sticks, global manufacturers could well move manufacturing into India and at competitive costs. Of course, India as a manufacturing come export base, remember the local market is unlikely to be big enough on its own, is something that is evolving and will take some time before, let's say, an Apple gets the confidence to do full high-end manufacturing here, and I mean of laptops. As I understand, it would take some time or a little more time to make a full laptop in India as opposed to assembling an iPhone 15, which of course is commendable on its own. The good news, of course, is that we're all headed in that direction but could do without the sudden shock and awe policy pronouncements. Speaking of high-end manufacturing, will Elon Musk really build his factory in India? Elon Musk met Prime Minister Narendra Modi and promised to explore investing in India as soon as humanly possible, to quote his own words later. But he is having conversations with several countries. Now, before I come to that, Tesla's teams are visiting India right now to talk about, well, Powerall, its battery storage system for India, and seeking incentives to build a factory, Reuters is reporting. All good, except that this is the battery storage system first, or the car later, or are we talking about two independent pitches which might run concurrently when it comes to manufacturing? Well, I don't know. Tesla's Powerall looks like a single-door refrigerator in height, but much sleeker in depth, if you get the picture, and can be hung from a wall, if you get the further picture. Tesla has of course been in talks for setting up a new electric vehicle factory in India to build a car priced around $24,000. Now, that is of course cheaper than any other car elsewhere of its kind, but we don't know if this is on-road or ex-factory, because these details do matter in India. Because at 20 lakh rupees, it's not a small or affordable car, even with the Tesla badge, in which case the market size for it will shrink. Anyway, back to the Powerall. In recent meetings in New Delhi, Tesla proposed a system that can store power from solar panels or the grid for use at night or during outages. Although Tesla has sought a number of incentives to set up a battery storage factory, Indian officials apparently conveyed that those would not be available. But they did add that the government could help create a fair business model for the company by offering subsidies to those purchasing such products, which I guess is somewhat similar to someone buying an electric two-wheeler. During a 2015 visit to Tesla's California campus accompanied by Musk, Prime Minister Modi apparently reviewed the product, that's the Powerall, and later said he enjoyed discussing how battery technology could help farmers, according to Reuters. Now, the Powerall, with incentives, costs about $5,500 in California with additional costs for solar panels, which is expected. Now, back to electric cars. Bloomberg is reporting in a very interesting dispatch that barely a day goes by without another headline alluding to Tesla possibly setting up shop in a new part of the world. Just last week, for example, on Sunday, Elon Musk met with Turkish President Recep Erdogan, who asked the CEO to build a factory in his country. On Monday, the Wall Street Journal reported that Saudi Arabia and Tesla were in talks about a manufacturing facility in the kingdom. On Wednesday, Thailand's new premier told Bloomberg Television that Tesla is among the US companies he's quoting for investment. And finally, on Thursday, just to recap, Reuters reported that Tesla had drawn up plans to make battery storage systems in India. So talk of potential Tesla plans have come up when Musk met with South Korean President Yoon Suk Yul in April, French President Emmanuel Macron in May, and of course, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi in June in New York. Other countries mentioned this year include Indonesia, Mongolia, Spain, and Portugal. Musk's response to all of this has been varied. 
He's told Erdogan, Yoon, Macron and Modi that their countries are in the mix as Tesla considered future investment as reported by Bloomberg. However, he did dismiss the Wall Street Journal's report on Saudi Arabia, calling it utterly false and was apparently furious that talks that they were having with Spain had leaked. But what if, asks Bloomberg, Musk has decided that Tesla has more than enough car making capacity for the moment. Now, let's look at the figures. Tesla's ambition is apparently to sell 20 million electric vehicles a year by the end of the decade. That's in seven years from now. The four car companies the company is operating currently can only produce about 2 million vehicles annually. Even after scaling up these facilities, plus a fifth one going up in Mexico, obviously Tesla will need several more factories to reach that level of output it's aiming for 2030. These factories, by the way, are called gigafactories. He gives a very clear message about what happened to the global economy and concern also about the overcapacity today. Luhut Panjaitan, Indonesia's coordinating minister for maritime affairs, said two weeks ago about a meeting with Elon Musk. So they're not going to do any expansion for the next one or two years, he said, referring to Tesla. Musk was very frank to us, Panjaitan added, saying that Musk alluded to not wanting to go bankrupt like General Motors and Chrysler did in 2009. Almost the same day, Mexico's Reforma reported that Tesla had pumped the brakes with parts maker it had been pressuring to lay down routes near the car plant it's constructing in Monterey. An unidentified sources at a Chinese supplier told the newspaper that there had been a rush two or three months earlier and that a month later, Tesla told the supplier to wait. Tesla, by the way, has been dropping prices all year to boost deliveries. After telling investors in January there was potential to produce 2 million cars in 2023, the CEO cautioned during Tesla's last quarterly earnings that it would stick with a target of 1.8 million. Of course, despite all of this, or because of all of this, Tesla may well choose India over all these options because of all the other reasons we hear often. But it is good to know what the landscape is looking like. And hmm... A bottle of booze that costs 513 rupees in Karnataka costs 100 rupees in Goa. An analysis conducted by the International Spirits and Wines Association for the Times of India says a bottle of spirit encompassing whiskey, rum, vodka, and gin that retails for 100 rupees in Goa can go up to 134 rupees in Delhi and a 513 rupees in Karnataka. Karnataka, of course, is next door and shares a common border with Goa, so you can well imagine what the flow of liquor or booze will be like. We of course knew Goa was always cheap and which is why many buy in Goa and spirit away to other cities and towns across the country but these numbers are surprising indeed. Goa's taxes at 49% of the MRP or maximum retail price not exactly the lowest but they're obviously much lower to Karnataka's 83% and Maharashtra's 71% the TUI report says. The price differential takes into account import duties applicable to foreign liquor products, which also remain consistent across states. But the disparity in state taxes leads to significant price variations of over 20% for popular Scotch brands between cities like Mumbai and Delhi, which is why you see people lining up at Delhi airport's shop to buy booze to take back to Mumbai. For example, a bottle of Black Label, which costs around 3,100 in Delhi, could go for 4,000 rupees in Mumbai, says the TOI report. And I could, of course, go on to more examples, brands and prices, but I'm sure you will find out very soon if you don't know it already. And the Hollywood strike. 
Only writer strike is ending. If you're a fan of the late night shows in the United States, you might be seeing your favorite Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Fallon and Drew Barrymore come back to the small screens, live streams and on stage. The Writers Guild of America, which represents more than 11,000 screenwriters, apparently reached a tentative deal on a new contract with entertainment companies on Sunday, all but ending a 146-day strike that has contributed to a shutdown of television and film production, the New York Times is reporting. But much of Hollywood will remain at a standstill. Tens of thousands of actors remain on strike and no talks between the Actors Union and the studios were scheduled. While Hollywood struggles to find its feet again after COVID and a self-imposed strike, Indian cinema is doing well. More on that tomorrow though. And that's it from me on this edition of The Core Report. Do log on to www.thecorereport.in, visit our website, subscribe to our newsletter, listen to our podcast, and more importantly, send in your feedback and let us know what more you'd like to hear. See you tomorrow. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.